to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. We're so glad that you've joined us again on Mission 150. I'm David Trim. And I'm Sam Nevis. David, in the last few episodes, we've been talking about the reorganization of the church from 1901 and the 1903. They kind of started in 1901, and then it became much more concrete in 1903. But there was also a move in terms of, of the headquarters, the physical location. It came from Battle Creek to Maryland. Um, why did they move? I think that's, you know, I do think that's, that's crucial. I think there are actually probably, there are several things that are crucial about what happens in 1901 to 1903. Because, of course, the question is, do they follow through? You can make whatever reforms you like, but, but do they have an impact? And I think, you know, first is the way the reformed organizational structures were implemented and how church leaders related to them. Um, second was the development of new administrative structures within the general conference including a tr the transition away from overlapping and competing associations and departments operating at each church level of church structure. But in addition was the creation at the General Conference headquarters and largely by General Conference Secretary William Spicer and his secretariat team in the 20 years after 1903 of a complex system for recruiting missionaries from the North American homeland and the new European and Australian heartlands and deploying and sustaining them in mission fields in Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and the islands of the Pacific. And the church actually still essentially uses today the administrative systems developed during the time of Spicer as GC secretary. But third is the change in literal and figurative perspective allowed by the move of the headquarters from Battle Creek, Michigan, to Tacoma Park near Washington, D.C. In fact, actually, Tacoma Park is partly inside the District of Columbia, the federal United States district, and partly within the, uh, the state of Maryland. It actually spans the border. And I'm, I'm told by one veteran of the G.C. that in the 1970s, there was one point they discovered their phone bill had gone up dramatically. And the reason was that calls from one G.C. building to another G.C. building were being charged at interstate rates because they were crossing the, the border and they were able to get that resolved. But so they moved from Battle Creek in Michigan, which had been the place for Adventists. It was Adventist Central to Tacoma Park and Washington, D.C., now, the decision to move from Battle Creek had actually been taken at the GC session in April 1903. That was yet another decision they took. The decision was to move somewhere in the Atlantic states. So that basically means somewhere from New York down to Washington. It, was that for mission purposes? It was easier to... That, well, it's partly... I was going to say fly out, but they did not fly. No, they did, they didn't <laughs> fly. But it's partly to get away from the influence of John Harvey Kellogg. And it's partly the... The Council of Ellen White, who says there's too much centralized in Battle Creek, which, as we touched on a, two or three episodes ago, was certainly the case. Uh, and so Ellen White says, get out of Battle Creek, spread things around. Um, and so it's partly following that, but it's partly to get away from the, the toxic influence of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. But it also is, I think, for missionary reasons. And this is the reason that they eventually settle um, on Washington. Now, Remember, they originally say somewhere in the Atlantic states, which could be anywhere from New York to, to Washington. It could be Philadelphia. It could be Baltimore. 
And actually, Willie White, uh, a senior church leader who was the son of Ellen G. White, had actually, he had seen the argument for locating the General Conference headquarters in London, which would have been a very different, perhaps, history of the General Conference. Because this is going to be closer to the mission field. Right. Remember, London isn't just on the other side of the Atlantic. London was the place where international shipping routes crossed. And if you wanted to send a missionary the from America, the chances were they were going to have to go through London anyway. So Willie White actually says perhaps we could move to London, but in the end, he says it should be New York, Philadelphia, or Washington, D.C., the national capital, as he says. And I think they settle on Washington partly because it's the national capital. Why does that matter? It's not for prestige. It's because in Washington, the church headquarters is closer to the foreign, it's close to the foreign embassies uh, to which requests of for authorization course. to start work in new mission territories had to be submitted. The embassies to which applications for visas for missionaries had to be submitted. I never thought about that. And if you're wanting to open up the, the work in a new territory, when much of the world belongs to European countries, you need to go through that European country to get permission, say, to start working in Congo or wherever it might be. So you need to go to their local embassy to start the process rolling. Um, and this was a laborious and time-consuming process to get visas for missionaries, much less approval to start the work in new areas. And it was expedited by being adjacent to Washington, D.C. You can always just go down. You don't have to do it through the post. You can always just go down. And in fact, we know that people telephone because there are records in the GC archives of people in the GC secretariat ringing up the British embassy, say, to, to, to ask what's happened with the visa request we put in for Mr. and Mrs. X. Um, it's also the case that there were international banks in the national capital that weren't in Battle Creek, um, which enabled the transmission of funds to and from church headquarters and mission stations around the world. So again, this is being, it's not just to get away from John Harvey Kellogg. It's not only because Ellen White says, decentralize. They're doing this with an eye to mission. And so long as you're focused in Battle Creek, really, real expansion of the mission work is going to be more difficult because you don't have access to the embassies, you don't have access to the international banks that you're going to need for the transfer of funds. Tacoma Park, which is where they eventually settle on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., was on a major rail line. It's also on a streetcar stop. So they can take the streetcar and be in the center of Washington, D.C. in less than half an hour, ready to go into those banks to do or, or to go to those embassies or indeed to to lobby a U.S. congressman if, if, if that's what they need to do. So there's the streetcar that takes them down there. But Tacoma Park also has a stop on a major railway line um, which could take them to Baltimore. Baltimore was important because it, at that stage it was the second largest port in the United States. So why do you need a port? Because missionaries have to sail from ports in order to get where they're going. And actually, the even larger port of New York was easily accessible by train from Tacoma Park. You could actually board a train in Tacoma Park and, and could get to New York. So it's new opportunities presented themselves, but equally, Sam, I think importantly, new horizons were opened mental as well as geographical horizons. Because after 50 years in one location, um, you suddenly move to another location and that opens up. If we were able to do this, then all of our other traditions that are not 
related to our beliefs, but if we change, we'll have a positive impact in mission. Well, let's touch on that too. Let's change that too. Yeah. It was decided in 1903. Does that mean they had investigations before that? Were they no, studying they this before that? They only seem to study it afterwards. So uh, we're going to move to the East Coast, north northeast, essentially, central not northeast. New England, not Boston, it's the Atlantic. So that means from New York to Washington. Oh, I see. But okay. So they're thinking, I think, already in terms of ports. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, the big ports are here. Yes. New York, Baltimore. Yes. It may be that Daniels, the president, already has in mind Washington, D.C., but he does. He goes and visits uh, potential land that they can purchase in several different cities, and he finds the settlement of Tacoma Park, and it's perfect because it's, it meets an Adventist requirement, Sam, which is that it feels like country living, which, of course, Adventists <laughs> love, because it's on the outskirts of the city. And so it feels like you're almost rural. And yet again, within a matter of minutes, you can be in the center of the city because it's got the streetcar line. Well, 100 years on, it doesn't feel like the country at all in Tacoma Park. <laughs> well, it, it still feels like the suburb rather than the middle sure, of the city. Sure, that is true. It, uh, but no, it's it definitely, no, it's, and it's nowhere near being rural. But at the time it did. Um, so uh, Daniel sees the Tacoma Park site and says this is the place basically Did but the, i think it also what it the other things the train line the the streetcar line or it was the whole package of things did the the fire uh in the sanitarium and the review up there have some influence in deciding oh, to move oh very much so but those had actually taken place a few years before sure but that's when ellen white has her vision and says there's too much been centralized here um, so let's talk about that so a little the, bit. The fires, the fires unquestionably play a part. We, we want every ministry to be successful. We set it up for success. And when it is successful, it grows. You have a university that is doing a good job. It grows to a huge size. You have hospitals that grow. You have publishing houses that grow. And yet there is a danger of this growth that she always points out uh, to much you know, centralization of, of resources and power and so on. Is there, how do you see that tension, especially as they were dealing with it at that well, time? The irony is that they then create these same institutions in Tacoma Park. They create Washington Adventist Sanitarium, Washington Sanitarium, which becomes Washington Adventist Hospital, and it's, it still exists today. They create what is initially Washington Missionary College. Um, today's Washington Adventist University, though it's changed its name several times, actually. And for a while, it's the Foreign Mission Seminary. It's actually a general conference institution to train would-be foreign missionaries. Hmm. Um, and they create, they, they move the headquarters of the publishing company from Battle Creek to Tacoma Park. So is there, has there not been another centralization? Um, the answer is yes, there has. But I think the key things are the difference between the 1890s, when again, that all of those institutions are being run by a very small group in Battle Creek. And we touched on this two episodes ago, a, an executive committee of only nine of whom not all were, were always present. And again, that influence of John Harvey Kellogg, who's this titanic figure, um, who's very influential and has domineering control of the, the sanitarium and the American Medical Missionary College. They actually had two colleges in Battle Creek at one point. Um, and none of those things apply in Washington, D.C. Um, I do think there's still the danger that you can have too much in one place, because think today, if you were to have um, 
one natural event that wiped things out. Uh, so, for example, a few years ago, a volcano exploded in, in the Philippines that blanketed both the division headquarters and the Adventist International Institute for Advanced Studies and the campus of Northern of, uh, of Adventist University of the Philippines, blanketed them all with ash and made it very difficult for them to continue because of the, the volcanic eruption. Um, so having things all in one place is a little bit risky. Uh, and today, the General Conference is some distance removed from the hospital and the publishing house basically no longer exists. The, the Adventist publishing house in North America is based in Idaho. The university is still there, but it's about a 20-minute drive from the General Conference headquarters. Um, so it's, 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 it's not all in one location. What impact did you think it had in their in their psyche, in the way that they saw the church, this, you know, you work, what was it like in Battle Creek? Was there a building for the general conference? There were several buildings. Yeah, I mean, there's, okay. the, there's the building, there's, there's, the, there's the hospital and sanitarium buildings, obviously. Sure. There's the building for the college, for the American Medical Missionary College. Mm -hmm. The Review and Herald has a building. The Dime Tabernacle is there, the biggest Adventist church, and actually remained the biggest Adventist church in terms of membership into the 1930s. Wow. So many Adventists, of course, lived around Battle Creek, and they didn't all move to Tacoma Park. Uh, so Battle Creek remains the largest single Adventist church into the 1930s. Um, the Review and Herald building included offices for the General Conference, but it included extra buildings as well. Um, so there are there are a number of. But was there a? But this is the building of the General Conference. There wasn't. They they used the, they used the Review and Herald building. That's very interesting. But here there was when they moved to Tacoma they Park. There their, was. They built their own, but it's not a grandiose building that they constructed. It was relatively small, um, and we can hopefully put in the video version of this a photograph of the the General Conference headquarters building. Okay. Uh, and, and people will see that it wasn't some grandiose edifice to their pride in themselves or what they'd achieved, just the opposite. I think the key thing is that it's a mental change. And uh, it's a mental change that was indispensable for a movement that increasingly and purposefully faced not inwards inside the U.S. to Lake Michigan and the U.S. Midwest, but instead faced outwards across the oceans. And that, remember, as we talked in the last episode, that's how the GC now sees its job. The union yes. conferences in America, they're responsible for growing the church in North America. The general conference is responsible for growing the church in the rest of the world. All those vast number of places where there is no Adventist presence. And so it's not just that you've made yourself closer to banks and embassies and ports. You've also signaled something by doing that. You're signaling it to the whole church and perhaps even to yourself. And so there's a, a change in mindset that takes place. But it's a change in mindset in that group of leaders. And you know, that's something I want to stress, Sam, as, as, as we can continue with this and perhaps start to draw towards a conclusion. A lot of the historiography of the reforms of the church have focused on the technical side of the actual administrative restructuring that took place. But the reason it made a difference, I think, is to a large extent because of the people who were involved. The structures were essential, yes, absolutely, because the structures weren't working, we know that. They changed the structures and things work. But what really makes the structures work 
is the leadership team. So you have Arthur G. Daniels, only 43 when he becomes General Conference President, who spent almost 10 years outside the United States as a missionary. Now, in 1901, he gets a new secretary and treasurer and apparently doesn't get on with them because two years later, he gets a new secretary and treasurer. I think either he didn't get on with them or more likely he felt they didn't have his passion for mission because neither of them had ever worked outside the United States. And in 1903, they elect as secretary William Spicer, who'd been a missionary to Britain, who'd been a missionary to India and had been secretary of the Foreign Mission Board. So he's been there, he's got experience, and as treasurer they elected a man called Owen H. Evans. Evans was a very experienced American church leader, but he had been a missionary to Norway. So you've got suddenly a new team takes over in 1903. They serve together until 1909 when Evans becomes president of the first division, the Asiatic division. So he goes back to the mission field. Hmm. Um, later in 1913, he comes back and becomes president of the North American Division. But he initially, in 1909, he goes to become president of the Asiatic Division, as they call it. They replace him with a man called Walter Knox. Now, Knox hadn't served outside the United States, but he had been California Conference Treasurer when California was responsible for mission in Mexico and Hawaii. Okay. So he had some understanding of foreign mission, and he's, in, he's, he's mentally in tune with Daniels and Spicer. And they then served together for 13 years. So Daniels is president for 21 years from 1901 to 22. Spicer is secretary for 19 years, from 1903 to 22. And then he's president, president for eight years. And you have Evans, who's sec treasurer for six years, and is still an important leader because he's a vice president of the General Conference. And you've got Knox, who's treasurer for 13 years. That's very unusual to be president for 20 years. That had not happened. No, not but and, and still hasn't happened. Before or since, in no, fact. Yeah, that's that's a record and probably a record that will that will stand. Do you think it's a function as a consequence of the new foundation that had to be laid based on the changes that the world was going through? Because we're talking at that time a world sec a first world war. You're talking about a which impacted mission, obviously, because it's a world war and we want to send people around the world. Right. And they there, couldn't. And they couldn't. There was a pandemic, yes, which I'm sure we, we're going to revisit in future episodes. But I'm, I want to pull that string at some point. I of, think so. And also, of course, it's an era of great technological change. Radio. Um, radio comes in, even shipping. There had been steamships, of course, since the mid-19th century, but they're becoming ever more effective and efficient. And so journey times are becoming shorter and shorter. You can cross the Atlantic in five days if your ship is fast and has good weather. And even if it doesn't, it's going to take maybe seven days, mm -hmm. which is why, as we touched on last episode, European church leaders can come over to America once or twice a year to take part in the spring and the autumn council of the General Conference Committee. Um, so you've got extraordinary technological change. This is still an era of European imperial expansion. Uh, and so you've got opportunities opening up because parts of the world that had been cut off and isolated are now becoming integrated into the global community. We wouldn't use the term globalization yet, but we're in a sort of era of proto-globalization because of the changes in technology, because of the political imperial structures. And at the same time, as you say, there's, there's radio comes in, um, You've got the world war, the pandemic. So to have leaders... Uh, Telegrams can be sent. Which, ex exactly. And, yeah. and 
new telegraph wires get put under oceans. It means you no longer have to write letters. You can rely on cables. And if you go to the General Conference archives, in our papers, you'll very often find uh, telegrams wow. as opposed to letters. Um, if it's in more detail, then of course they'll, they'll write a letter. Uh, but actually, one of the interesting documents we have is a code, which is many pages long, and it's for President Irwin, who is going to make a trip to the Pacific. And it's a series of one word or several words, which enabled him to each of which stands for an entire paragraph so that he can save the money on, on, on telegrams, you see. Wow. Telegrams you pay per letter. So you want to keep it to a, you want to keep it to a minimum. So they have you know one word which means I am fine. My ship arrived on schedule in Sydney after a good journey, or another word that says my ship arrived on schedule, but I am not well. But after the privations of the voyage, you know it it, it just and when you see it, you check the the map. Exactly. Oh, that's what he means. You just go through the code and say what does that one word mean? It means this paragraph. So, but you know you've got all these technologies. The church therefore has unprecedented opportunities much greater opportunities than it had ever had before. And you have a leadership team in place who are not only willing but able to, to seize them. And again, it helps, um, I think, that they're, that they're younger. Daniels is only 43. Spicer is not yet 40 when he becomes General Conference Secretary. Huh. Um, and then, of course, is in office for, as President or Secretary, uh, he's actually in office for 27 years. And, and there is a, a, a very important university named after Spicer. Spicer. Exactly, in, in India. And Irwin's and Knox play their part as well because, of course, without good financial management, none of this would help. And whereas in the late 1890s, the church is in financial deep trouble, uh, we touched on this a few episodes ago, actually within 10 years, they've got most of their debts paid off and they've now committed to institutions no longer taking on debt. Uh, the finances are working well. And why? Partly because the members all understand that this church is now well-led and it's committed to mission and the members respond. They respond by their, the tithes they return and the offerings that they give. And so the financial situations have been resolved. And so there is more money to spend on foreign mission. And they put it there and people therefore keep giving. And they introduce what they call, for, for example, in 1920, they introduced the week of sacrifice offering in which they encourage members to save up and once per year give the equivalent of a week's salary. And they introduce uh, the mission appeal in-gathering, as it was called, harvest in-gathering, the mission appeal where they actually went into local communities and said, we're Adventists, we have these mission institutions, will you support us? And they also have what starts as the five cent a week plan and becomes the 10 cent a week plan and gradually keeps increasing with inflation by which members commit to give a certain amount every week towards mission. So the money is coming in, it's being well managed, but at the same time you've got a leadership team that has got a really different set of attitudes and is now in a location where it can actually do the mission as opposed to being, as it were, cut off and isolated um, near the, in, in, not in the middle of the states, but certainly in the middle of the Midwest. So there's been a sea change, um, and all those things together are as important, Sam, or maybe even a little more important than the changes in structure that are introduced in 1901 and 1903. You need the changes in structure, but you also need a leadership team who have the mental vision 
to build on the changes in structure. In fact, it doesn't matter how great your structure is, if you don't have great leadership, um, you're not going to live out your full potential. That's right. David, I can't wait to explore the next steps and what happens during that time in terms of mission and missionaries that are sent uh, to different parts of the world. But let's draw a line in this episode and we revisit the rest in the following ones. Yes. Thanks again for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv, on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel, or listening on your favorite podcast platform. If you are on YouTube, write down the comments. You can ask your questions. We will read it. And if you've enjoyed this episode, of course, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities today where you can serve, you can go to vividfaith.com. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world. Mm -hmm.